0: The Lifestylist, episode 179.
1: I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. All right, here's the deal, guys. I've been into the health and wellness scene for 22 plus years now. I've seen a lot of different supplements come and go, a lot of different devices and modalities come and go. One that I found last year in 2017, I feel is never going to go. And that's called red light therapy or photobiomodulation. You can go back to episode number 169 of the Lifestylist podcast and learn all about it, where I interview the founders of Juve. Not just about the Juve products that I'm going to tell you about right now, but just about this therapy altogether. Uh, There are thousands of clinical studies on red light therapy. So if you're serious about your health, it's hard to ignore that research and hard science. This is not woo-woo stuff. I'm into some woo-woo stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But this is seriously effective treatment. Okay, so whether you're trying to improve your skin reduce joint pain, get better sleep or really improve your testosterone production, which has been one of the major benefits for me, then red light therapy with a juve is going to be a major investment in your health. So I use my juve religiously. Edit Now I use my Juve religiously, but I really miss it when I travel. I mean, the thing's like five feet tall or something. So it sits here in my office when I'm gone and I really miss it. (laughs) I wanna hug my Juve. So that's why I'm super pumped about their new handheld device. It's called the Juve Go and it gives you all the same Juve red light power, but it fits in the palm of your hand so you can take it anywhere. And you can also kind of use it, you know, spot use it like in certain areas. Like for guys, I'll just give you a little hint. If you're trying to raise your testosterone, you use it down in the nether regions. I know it sounds weird, but that's what a lot of the science is actually about. So to check out the Juve units, whether it's the modular ones like I have or the handheld, all you have to do is head over to juve.com forward slash Luke. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Luke. And once you're over there, you're going to see a special bonus the Juve team is uh, hooking you up with if you're a listener. So just use the code Luke at checkout and you're going to get a free gift. So that's juve.com forward slash Luke and use the code Luke at checkout. If you were lucky enough to hear episode 175 with Carly Stein, then you're gonna perfectly understand why I'm so excited to tell you about Beekeepers Naturals, the best bee product company in the world. If you missed 175, I'm going to encourage you right now to go back and check it out. Now, I've been into bee products for a long time. I take propolis, the bee pollen, the honey... The royal jelly, all of that. But it's kind of a guessing game when you go to the health food store to figure out which one's the best, which one's really organic. Does that even mean anything? Turns out not so much in many cases. But when it comes to a company like Beekeepers Naturals, you know that you are getting the most pure and most potent bee products on the planet and that the bees are being protected and taken care of. Now, a lot of people just use bees for their amazing products and kind of abuse them, to be honest, not to get crazy here. I mean, I know it's only a little bee, but they're a crucial part of our entire ecology on planet Earth. So not only taking from the bees is important, but giving back to the bees is equally as important. And Beekeepers Naturals does that. But more than anything, just straight up, they make the best tasting and the most powerful bee products on the market. So I'd really love for you to get over there and check them out. You can find them at beekeepersnaturals.com. That's beekeepersnaturals.com. If you use the code lifestylist, you will save 20% off your order. If you're just starting out over there and you don't know what to get, I'm going to recommend that you try Bee Powered because that's got all of the superfoods from the hive in one jar. It's delicious. It's super potent. And I'm on this stuff uh, almost every day. I can't have it every day because then I go through a jar in like four days because I'm just nuts like that. But this stuff is just absolutely insanely powerful and pure and it's tested for pesticides and toxins. It's clean, it's legit. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, use the code LIFESTYLIST to save 15%. Here we are, this 11th day of December, 2018. This year is uh, screeching to a halt here as we move into 2019. I can't believe it's been two years I've been doing the Lifestylist podcast. It's been a real gift. You know what else I've been doing for two years? I've been fortifying and curating the most fantastic online store for all things health and biohacking. That's right. You can go to lukestory.com forward slash store and find just about every health-related product or technology that I have ever used in my life and found useful, or anything that I continue to use. You'll also find over there every sponsor and advertiser that makes an amazing product that's ever advertised on the show. It's a very powerful resource. And keep in mind, it's also a great way to support the podcast. If you're not one to... Uh, give a donation, which I don't even know. Do I have that anymore? Yeah, I guess you could PayPal me if you if you want to help me um, pay for the production of the show. But no, seriously, I have with with most of the brands in the store, I have some sort of an affiliate relationship. So if you go in there and buy X product, it's likely that I get a commission. So it's a wonderful way to support my work here. Uh, It gets exceedingly more expensive uh, to produce the show as the quality goes up and the travel goes up and the events and all of the things that happen with making a brand around the Lifestylist podcast. And you can go in there and buy products that have been pre-vetted and pre-selected by yours truly. And it's not only the past two years that I've been building out that part of the site, but it's really the past 22 plus years that I've been researching all of the companies and all of the stuff that makes you feel good. So go to lukestory.com forward slash store. Now there's something in it for you too, other than the fact that you don't have to Google around and read 150 Amazon reviews of some freaking vitamin like the geek that you're listening to does, but you're also going to get exclusive discounts in most cases. So if it's a brand that I work with and they want me to promote their stuff, one of the requirements is that I demand that they give the audience a discount. So if you go to lukestory.com forward slash store, you're going to find some really cool stuff there. You're going to find some dope discounts. So it's a great way to uh, support the podcast and support yourself and support some really great brands that are doing it right. If anyone is in my store, uh, they are legit and they're the real deal. So it's a trifecta win for all three parties. Let's talk about next week's episode. Damn. Let me just say that. It's called, the episode is called Damn. No, seriously, it's episode number 180 Manifestation Magic, The Missing Link with Free and Native, otherwise known as Lacey Phillips. Now, this is Lacey's uh, second time on the show. And the first time, I think it was last year she was on. Sorry, I do not have the episode number uh, in front of me, but uh, this woman blew my freaking mind. And this episode coming up Tuesday is no exception. So make sure you subscribe to the show. Make sure that you're sharing these episodes as you listen to them with a couple friends. It only takes two seconds to click pause, copy the link, text it to someone. It's that easy. And you'll be doing your part to bring mankind to the next level of understanding. Wow, I just really just blew my own show up there. Yeah, I'm taking the world to the next level in in my own way, you know, little by little, person by person. Upcoming event, wow, this weekend, holy crap. December 14th, 15th, and 16th, the Neil Strauss Intensive, the Biohacking Intensive with me, Jack Cruz, Matt Maruca, Matt Blackburn, all the homies, we're gonna be geeking out on all of the latest biohacking technologies. You can go to lukestory.com forward slash events. If you want to come rock and roll, let's talk about our guest, Monica Berg. She is a change junkie and she wants to challenge the way we think about everything. In her first book, fear is not an option. She challenged readers to eradicate fear from their lives using the principles of Kabbalah In her latest book, rethink love. She uses years of personal experience, teaching and counseling to eradicate false belief systems around love and relationships. And don't we have a few of those? But what we talk about in this episode is Kabbalah and its approach to fear. And Kabbalah is something I've been interested in for a long time, and I've been really excited to do a show dedicated to this esoteric teaching. It's, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating to me uh, because it's so old, it's been around for a very long time. And it is still going strong all over the world. And there's just so many great principles that this particular system has to offer. And I'm all about discovering the most powerful principles of health and spirituality and applying them to my life and helping to share uh, that wisdom with listeners like you so that you can try it yourself, all right? So here's what we talk about. In this uh, episode with Monica Berg that I recorded in a tiny little hotel room in New York City, (laughs) I was going to record on the patio, and then I got out there and uh, I I like got a room with a nice terrace, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so I get there and it's like 40 degrees the whole week I was there. So I recorded in a few different locations. It was an interesting uh, podcast tour. That's kind of what I call it: It was the New York City tour of tour of 2018, bro. Uh, But yeah, Monica and I sat down in a in a tiny little room. But it was cozy. And you can watch this and 99.9% of my podcasts on YouTube, by the way, folks. I go out of my way to always make these into a video form as well. And if you follow me on Instagram, if you're a member of the private Facebook group, the Lifestylist Podcast, you can watch most of these be live streamed. And a lot of people don't realize that. If you don't want to wait for an upcoming episode, Uh, just keep your eye on my Instagram and I'll be announcing, you know, who I'm going to record next. And you can watch us in all our sloppy glory, completely uncensored and unedited as I record most of these shows, because that's just what I do. I like to break the internet. Boom. Five channels from one sit down. That's my goal. Here's what we talk about in this episode with Monica. Why bad things happen to good people. Yeah, we solved that for real. How Monica's son's Down syndrome diagnosis made Monica a better, more empathetic person. How you can release unnecessary shame tied to the idea of sin. How to joyfully connect with loved ones experiencing Alzheimer's. What you have to gain or lose from the three types of fear. The benefits of contemplating the temporary nature of your current incarnation. The relationship between the material world, the 1% reality, versus the non-material world, the other 99%, the ultimate currency, the desire to receive for the sake of sharing, the five Kabbalistic levels of the soul, and then the fact that it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens. Facing religious hypocrisy and finding the value in faith, the Zohar, a key to decode ancient Jewish and Christian texts, How to utilize Kabbalistic astrology to become a better parent and partner. How to find the core of every fear and become free of it. The difference between fear and anxiety. And finally, Monica's seven steps to completely and utterly conquer your fear. So if you're ready to courageously face your fears and take your best self out in the world, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Monica Berg. Monica Berg, welcome to the Lifestylist podcast. Thank you. Super great to meet you.
0: You too. It's good to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan. So I want to give you a little bit of backstory here for the audience and for you. Many years ago, and maybe you can tell me the year that it came out because it was a new book. I was in a coffee shop in the Valley in Los Angeles, and uh, at the time I was just starting to devour spiritual literature, reading Emmett Fox and... um, Maybe, uh, maybe Eckhart Tolle's books were out at that time, but that type of stuff, you mm-hmm. know, Course in Miracles, all this kind of stuff. And I was in this coffee shop and I was, uh, they had a big uh, wall of books behind them, new books for sale. And I was ordering my coffee and this black book, which I think it, it had green writing on it, if I'm not mistaken, if not purple, whatever it was, it was a black book and it was small and it just screamed at me from the shelf, becoming like God.
0: Fluorescent Pink.
1: Fluorescent Pink. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You you knew the book. Becoming Like God. And I don't know why of all the books, you know, it wasn't like I was out shopping that day for a spiritual book or something. I was just, I was, I just wanted my damn coffee. And I said, Becoming Like God, I said, what's that book? And they handed it to me and I just, I flipped through it and it was, it was relatively small, short, simple. So I felt I could digest it. And, uh and that book ended up having a profound impact on me uh, because it was an introduction to some of the basic precepts of Kabbalah mm-hmm. which I knew nothing about I've heard Madonna say the word Kabbalah maybe <laughs> but I didn't you know I had no idea what it even was uh and in that book there was a framework of ego that for some reason like those little snippets of things you find in the journey stick with you and um it was one uh, frame framework for ego was the desire to receive for the self alone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's been my problem my whole life.
0: Well, like, most of us, right. You
1: know what I mean? And I read that. I was like, yeah, that's the thing. I've got to not be that way. And then, you know, of course it's all these years later. So what year might that have been that your husband, we're going to talk about your book, but that's how I kind of found you and that.
0: Right. My husband wrote that book. It's uh, about 18 years old, I'd okay. Say.
1: That that makes perfect sense. Is that sense.
0: when your journey started? Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, 20, 22 years ago, but in that first five years, I mean, I was like eating books, devouring books, and things like that. So, yeah, so that was my first introduction to Kabbalah. And then, uh, when I found you, figured out that you guys are related, you and uh, Michael Berg, and then got your book on audiobook, Fear is Not an Option, and I listened to it straight through with the exception of rest stops very recently on a trip to uh lake tahoe from la oh nice so i had the whole drive yeah and i like to sometimes just dive into a book when i have um attention to dedicate to it and i found your story in it you know the things that have transpired in your life uh, that led you to writing the book were profound and also just the basic teachings of how we deal with fear um and especially coming from the perspective of Kabbalah. So, mm-hmm. so there's the backstory. Um,
0: I like that. I went on a road trip. With you.
1: <laughs> you did. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm from, you read it, right? Your own book. That was your voice, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Some people have like an actor. do no, so. Well,
0: it's semi autobiographical. And right. um, I definitely have, I just finished my second book. I'm working on my third and I have a very specific voice and I don't ever want to lose that. I, I'm very passionate about what I do and what I believe in and, um, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, you did take a trip with me and it was your voice. So <laughs> here we are for round two. So, um, how did you first come across Kabbalah as a teaching?
0: Well, I was actually 17 and I went to Beverly Hills High School. I had a very kind of interesting childhood. I was born in Thibodaux, Louisiana, and my parents moved to California when I was seven and you know, as kids do, I guess they they were a bit concerned about where I was going in life and um, some of the choices I was making at the time. And they had found the Kabbalah Center; it was right around the corner from where we lived. And they started studying. Sat on
1: Robertson. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, they started studying this as a an intellectual study, not so much as a spiritual kind of life changing um, movement, and. I went on this trip to Israel with my father and we went to go to all of these different holy sites, energy sites. And I felt like I had known this before that I had experienced this before. You can call it deja vu, but I just suddenly all the things that I had never even thought about, like reincarnation or purpose or, um, you know, giving to others before yourself. It was like in an instant I knew it and I wanted it. Then I went back to LA and as life happens, um, I got distracted and then when I was 18 I became fully immersed in studying and really uh finding my purpose and my calling and thank God it's never changed since. I mean I found different ways to express myself and of course grow and transform but the teachings really gave me the understanding of purpose, why we're here and and joy, continual joy. And I remember in high school, you know, of course people who've heard of Beverly Hills High School, there was a TV show about it. There's a lot of wealth there and people are chasing, you know, it's the the nice car and then it's the best school and then it's the, the biggest house and then it's the best husband or wife and the kids. And I just remember thinking like, if this is all that there is, I'm done. Like this just can't be what it's all about because I felt so unfulfilled at the time. And again, you know, we, we did a lot of different things. I saw a lot of different things and I appreciate having that perspective, but I felt tired already at that age.
1: I relate to that <laughs> on a lot of levels. <laughs> so it's 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 broad, I'm sure, but can you say generally what the perspective of Kabbalah is in terms of our purpose? Why do we incarnate? Do we choose to? And if we choose to, what is our spirit or soul's intention in being here? Mm. If it's Huge serving... Huge question. My, yes. Yeah, I know. I tend to do that. I'm like, oh, give me the meaning of life in right. a soundbite.
0: <laughs> well... Kabbalah is an ancient wisdom as you know and it explains the the relationship between the material and the non-material world that we live in and most people are chasing the material and even if they are with a, a consciousness and awareness it's still all of the um emphasis and we think we'll be happy if we chase those things that are material. Then there's an entire other existence that's the non-material. In Kabbalistic terms, we call it the 1% reality and the 99% reality. So the 1% is what we're all living in. It's how we see things. It's our five senses, what we smell, hear. It's the first, you know, love at first sight. You see somebody and what are you really looking at? Are you seeing their soul? Are you seeing all the things that kind of excite you? So, It's about going through a transformative process where you start to expand your consciousness and you're able to tap into the 99% realm. Meaning that, like you said earlier, um, yes, we have desires and we want to achieve and we want to be successful. We want all those things, but it cannot only be for the desire to receive for the self alone. It needs to transform then to the desire to receive for the sake of sharing, because that is the ultimate currency. That is the ultimate thing that will bring you fulfillment. So that is the goal in life. It's to leave completely different from how you came into the world. And that that is, you know, a commitment. That is hard work. That is seeing challenges as gifts and opportunities for growth. And if you're successful at that, then you need to incarnate less. If you are unsuccessful, oh. then you have more and more opportunities to come back and master that. And then you can take that to a whole nother level. So if somebody is Hitler, right, they go lower, 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 and then the correction is much
1: more difficult. And,
0: you know, it's going to get too deep, but there's, you know, there's no there's incarnate no, in different...
1: There's no too deep for me. <laughs> Trust me. Like, we, I'll interview people and I'm like, cool, let's talk about celery juice. And next thing you know, we're like, the meaning of life and right. ghosts and like aliens, whatever, you know, so it's all, it's all um, good, but... I find this very fascinating and in alignment uh, with my own experience so far. From the, what do you call it, Kabbalistic? Kabbalistic. Kabbalistic. From the Kabbalistic viewpoint then, um, wow, that's very interesting. I'm still trying to digest that. It's ruining my ability to form a new question. (laughs) But sort of piggybacking on that, uh, intuitively, I sense that as we choose to um, take on form here as spirit, that, at some level we 're sort of migrating our way upward, perhaps even through the animal kingdom and different forms of life until we 're bestowed with the, you know, the good fortune of a human body where we have the the wherewithal and the cognition to actually you know use our spiritual will uh, to rise even further, and then perhaps through lifetimes. maybe this is a bit of the Vedic kind of framework um, over lifetimes to actually evolve as humans, so you know maybe I was a real selfish. A whole <laughs> three lifetimes ago, and that did not pay off. So I'm slowly learning, perhaps becoming more altruistic and kind and loving in this one, and seeing that as my true purpose. Um, from from your perspective, do you come in just as a human, and then work your way up as a human, or are there times where you go through different life forms like animals and things like that?
0: Right. So that's where you, that's where I was going to go, and then oh, I okay, myself. okay, cool. cool. Um, we are all. We're souls, right? We're, we're energy and we're connected to something greater than ourselves. We have free will in life. So we can earn all of the um, joy and fulfillment we are seeking. So we have a choice. We can either act with our ego or we can choose to have our soul lead in our actions. And based on your actions, then... Um, based on your thought and your desire, your actions follow. And so sometimes, you know, people say, um, you know, I'm good or that's a bad person. I don't, I don't see the world in that way. I think that everybody's capable of everything and we all have good and evil within us. And that's why sometimes I'll read articles and, you know, like, oh, Stan down the street, he was fine for the first 50 years of his life. And then suddenly he killed his neighbor. What happened to Stan? Well, we don't know what drove him in that moment, but we, that's where our free will comes in. And it's about constantly um, stopping that desire to receive the self alone, that ego, whatever that is, and feeding the other part. So if a person, again, year after year, day after day is feeding their ego, they're going to eventually, because change is inevitable. That's the law of life. So we're either growing forward or we're growing backwards And if you're aware and you're conscious, you're going to catch yourself. Am I going in the direction that is going to help me or am I going the other way? So if a person keeps behaving in selfish ways, and let's say they even murder somebody, their soul will then be incarnated into a lower level, right? So um, there's five levels of soul Kabbalistically. And, um, you know, one is capable of thought. Another one is capable of critical thinking, right? So you would see like, let's say a chimpanzee or an animal that mimics humans, but, they're, but then they don't quite, right? So it's a level they lower. They still throw
1: poop at people. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, so you can see now the range, right? And that's, that's up to us and our actions. And based on that, you, your soul can incarnate even into a rock. I mean, there are, I mean, I've seen stones that look like people. There is that energy and to elevate out of that is, um, it, it can take a lot of time. And that's why, you know, I, I think it's, I always chuckle when I hear somebody say, well, you only live once. I'm like, well, no, actually you don't. Um, you know, and what you do and what you think and how you live matters, matters more than we think.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I I sense for some reason, and who knows how many lifetimes it's taken to get to this point, but I've had a sense for many years in this lifetime that, I need to maximize the time here and grow as much as humanly possible during that time. So that's why I've devoted my life now to doing things like we're doing now and having and sharing conversations like this because uh, I don't want to digress. You know, it's like, I don't want to come back in a worse place than I was. I want to keep going and keep sort of graduating to the next class. And um, to me, that's, it's a beautiful way to contextualize life because it gives my life purpose. It's like, I want to raise my consciousness and experience more love and less fear. And there's no goal other than that, really. And if houses come and relationships come and careers come and go and all of those temporal things, it's like, cool, those are all just fluff on the side of the real core mission.
0: And the thing is, we are meant to enjoy, right? So relationships and and things that you know feeling good about the accomplishments you have like that is part of who we are we are humans and we have human experiences but our responsibility to ourselves and I don't think enough people talk about this is to really try to reveal our greatest potential because Kabbalists believe that we are all destined for greatness and the tools of Kabbalah actually enable us to activate that to activate our potential so on one hand, you know, one level of consciousness is I don't want to go backwards. Now I want to challenge you and everybody. Well, how fast can we go forward, right? right. That's right. what's exciting. I mean, that's what really feeds me every day when I wake up in the morning.
1: Do you find that from your experience or observation that people that have been put in ex- in situations in which they uh, experienced um, undue suffering, whether self-imposed or imposed by other? Uh, that those people tend to have a faster track if they choose the high road, than one who just like, oh, I like a yoga class here and there because life's sweet, but it's a little sweeter when I pray or meditate or whatever it is. I
0: don't know if it's necessarily what happens, good or bad. I think it's what you do with what happens. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't, I don't believe in the word suffering. I think that's a choice. I think we're put into situations that can be incredibly and excruciatingly painful and and debilitating for some time, but then we have a choice to do something with that because nothing happens just for nothing. There's a purpose for every single thing. I fundamentally and wholeheartedly believe that. So in my life, when anything um, difficult has happened and some would see as, you know, uh, a curse, I mean, I, uh, I spoke about in my book when I had my second son and he was born with Down syndrome and I found out a few hours after his birth, I mean, some people said, well, you're the unlucky one in the family. I was like, I'm sorry, What? I'm never going to accept that. And I really changed the way I thought about that whole situation. But at first, yes, I felt shame and I felt, oh my God, how, how did I give birth to a child with that? How did this happen? Right. And then I stopped and said, okay, I believe that everything is for my greatest good. What is the opportunity here? And I shifted my consciousness. That is what life's about. Things are going to happen that we don't want. Things are going to happen and we they might look bad at first. But if you shift your perspective and you look for the gift in it, that's what helps you grow to your next level. What? what how does a diamond become a diamond, right? A coal gets under extreme pressure and then you have something beautiful. We are the same way. So anything that happens that's difficult, that's hard, if you stop and say, okay, it's because I'm not as lucky as the person next to me or I deserve bad things or I must have really done something that warrants this, he will stay in that space forever. And then what happens? Then you're going backwards because then your consciousness is now one of suffering, of regret, of feeling sorry for yourself. And that will be your reality. And guess what's going to happen? Then everything around your reality is going to mirror that reality. That's your consciousness versus this happened. Okay, where is the gift here?
1: So suffering is dependent on perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I think basically, so. right. I mean, that's been the case in my life, you know. Definitely, because, um, and I think you know, my question was kind of getting at that was that I find the people that um, I gravitate toward or that run in the same circles as I, most of them have committed themselves wholeheartedly to a spiritual path because they have suffered so much and they had to find a way to contextualize life that's it, it, less painful. You know what I mean? Where the deaths happened, the you know surprise births. Things happen, uh, people, you know, get sick, things don't go our way, but there's no way to avoid that. And you can only anesthetize life experiences like that for so long. And eventually all the anesthesia kind of stops working, whatever that may be, shopping, drugs, drinking, whatever your TV, Instagram, whatever your escape is. But um, that's been profound for me is to, um, to be able to frame my life in that way, you know, because otherwise you're prone to self-pity and, you know, it's like, why is this happening to me? It's not happening to me, it's happening for me. That's right. It's amazing. So I love that perspective. In terms of, uh, I'm fascinated by uh, ancient wisdom and teachings. You know, uh, I don't know that much about Kabbalah. I soon will by the end of this conversation, hopefully, but I find it fascinating that at different points in uh, humankind's history, that teachings have sort of arrived through different teachers or masters and then been disseminated by their followers posthumously, and then somehow they're written down in text and sometimes verbal traditions, and then they trickle down over thousands and thousands of years until now we're in a coffee shop and we see a little book called Becoming Like God that has a distillation of those principles. So in terms of the origins of Kabbalah, how old is it? Where did it first present itself? If well, we know those things.
0: It's... um. Over 5,000 years old, and um, it was, the wisdom was given to um, Rabbi Shimon Bar (laughs) Yochai, and that information, that wisdom was then put into a book called the Zohar. And what the Zohar does is it takes the story of the Bible, and it gives you the hidden secrets behind it the deep wisdom, the meaning of it. So you could read something at face value. And if you read it, the Bible is actually very colorful. There's lots of interesting stories about prostitutes, about brothers, you know, hating each other, killing one another. But Kabbalah decodes what that really means. And in that is where we get the information and the tools to help us transform ourselves. And there are specific energies to each week and each month. And it's this perfect system that makes everything make
1: sense. And what part of the earth did it first present itself? These teachings in Israel. In Israel, okay. So, I'm I'm curious how it relates to Judaism because I have a lot of Jewish friends in L. A. And I always ask them like, "Well, what's up with Kabbalah?" And they're like, "What? I wonder what do you? They don't they don't know anything about it. You know, it's this sort of uh, off mystic offshoot of of the religion of um." Judaism as a whole, how does it fit into that framework and why are some Jewish people like aware of it and into it? And some just seem to be completely oblivious.
0: So it's because it's such a deep wisdom, it could take you an entire life to study it. And even at that point, I'm not sure if we'd understand it all. It's that layered and, and um, complex, but because it comes from the Bible, or the Torah, people have associated it to a, a sect of Judaism what the Kabbalah Center has done and um, which my my husband's parents started was to make this wisdom accessible to everybody. So before there was this understanding that you had to be 40, you could only be a man to study it. Um, you had to learn all of the other kinds of teachings before you could ever study Kabbalah because it's that complex. But what we teach really is there's so much to learn. You can start at a very basic level and even that would blow our minds And, uh, so I think there's that kind of understanding that, oh, it's a Jewish thing, but really this wisdom is so help. It helps people transform so much that it's for, it doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, what sex you are. It's just the most amazing
1: tool. Yeah. Universal truths, I guess, are like that.
0: They are. Truth is truth. And that's why so many religions do kind of have similarities and yeah.
1: There's one perspective on ego that I found useful and interesting, Uh, and that is that it's not framed as evil or bad in some perspectives of Christianity ego to me, you know, my interpretation of it at least is that that equates to sin, right? So if you have these selfish motives or, or motives that just serve the self alone, that now you're bad and you have to repent when it's just like, well, you're, to me, my perspective of myself is, is much more forgiving. It's like, well, yeah, I acted in ego, I acted from my instincts or base nature and, um, it had ill effects on my life or the lives of those around me. But that doesn't make me a bad person. That just means that the animal body got too selfish, greedy, horny, hungry, whatever it was. And then my higher self didn't keep me in check and the body went on and did animal body stuff, <laughs> you know, to put it in a very simplistic way. But that's not doesn't make me evil or bad. It just means that, you know, I was kind of led by the wrong, uh, you know, led more by the instincts than by that higher knowing. I think that's really valuable because... um Many people suffer from shame. Just, you know, we have so many things that we're ashamed of in our past and our behavior. And is it not counterproductive to, you know, make what might be perceived as a mistake or act from ego and then also beat yourself up about it on top of the mistake you just made?
0: Well, there's no way to get out of that from that space, right? And I have such a problem when people even raise children that way, you know, that was really bad what you did, or you're not a good little girl, or. I mean, all of these kinds of, and we hear them, and then we walk around with shame about everything that we do. Um, you, you were so accurate in saying ego. Ego is something we all need, right? Ego can be a good thing. It can help us um, achieve things. It can help us reach our goals. But who's leading the ego? If it's just your desire for yourself alone, well, then that's that's a dead end street. But if you transform this and you take all that desire and you use it for great things and to help others and to be kind, well, that's the purpose. It's not, I would never want to deny any aspect of who I am. I might want to elevate it, but I'm not going to sit back and say, well, that was really, how could you do that? That was such a bad thing. And in fact, in my book, I have a whole part called The Shame of Wanting. Because when we grow up, you know, and especially for, for girls when we're younger, we get this feedback that somehow it's unwomanly to say what you want or to ask for things. And so later in life, we stop asking. And I love watching kids who are having temper tantrums in the street and like, I want this now. <laughs> and we have a five-year-old and you know she has no problem with saying what she wants. And I love that. And I look at her and I'm like, I'm gonna be more like that, right? It's a reminder every day to stand in your own truth. Say, I want this. There's no shame in that. So I have a problem with anything that makes you deny who you are. Again, we want to elevate ourselves. We want to reach our potential. And sure, there's going to be aspects of yourself you may want to shed, but you decide if it's working for you or not, right? I mean, I, I really do kind of a, an assessment daily. You know, how did I behave today? Am I proud of what I did? What would I do differently? From that space of kindness, where well, you can achieve anything, but there has to be that space. If you have a space that's negative or, or full of shame, There's, there's really nowhere to go.
1: Yeah, that's so true. It's like a, it's a negative feedback loop. You know, you feel maybe, I mean, this is my story. I felt bad about myself for so much of my life that that feeling is painful that I would do things, you know, that I wasn't proud of to feel better. And then I'd feel the shame for doing the thing I did to feel better from the shame. It's like this spiral. And then you're on this wheel yeah, it, and you can't get off. Yeah. You don't even know
0: how you got there.
1: Yeah, it really sucks. So I appreciate that perspective of of Kabbalah that's, that's very forgiving. It's just saying, hey, listen, there's a spectrum of of consciousness and behaviors available to all humans. And um, sometimes you're going to choose the lower and that just is an indication that there's something amiss and that you need to head in another direction rather than like you've sinned and you're, I mean, when I was, I thankfully was um, not raised with any religion, you know, um, because it afforded me the opportunity to find my own framework for that as I needed. Uh, But I was exposed to a little bit of Christianity. I don't remember what types, but I was sent to some soccer camp that was like Christian and (laughs) And one summer camp, and at one of the summer camps, I was really into heavy metal when I was a kid. I missed listen to Black Sabbath, mm-hmm. you know, and that was like that was my jam, and I got in there, and they had this whole brainwashing. This is in the eighties, so there was a lot of there was a lot of propaganda about heavy metal music being from the devil because uh. a lot of the imagery and stuff was sure. very kind of demonic. And they had these huge sermons about, you know, if you listen to heavy metal, you're a sinner and these rock stars are all sinners it's and Ozzy
0: Osbourne's band was, yeah. with the he ate the bats. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, there was lots of yeah. stuff out there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so uh, but the the you know, the the end result of these transgressions was as indicated by the preachers or whoever these guys were, were that you literally like in your body when you die, you just perpetually burn in hell because you listen to rock music or something or did drugs or fornicated. And how does
0: that inspire one to live <laughs> a better life? It inspired me to do it more. Because you're like, hey, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to hell. I might <laughs> <It's> as well fun <laughs>
1: <with that> now. <laughs> it's like, well, I already blew that one. Uh, but it you know, instilled a lot of fear. And then, then, of course, comes that fear of God. So then who are we going to turn to in, in times of need mm-hmm. if we think the one we're turning to is the one that's been punishing us? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really cruel system. Whoever... You know, and I know that's not true of all sects of Christianity and all ways that it's presented, or of any religion for that matter. But that definitely turned me off. I was like, "I'm good. You guys can keep that." That sounds like a horror movie. I don't want any part of that. And proceeded to run a life, you know, um, on self will until that became too uncomfortable, and had to, uh, as I said, find my own relationship with God that was very personal and unique to me. That's that's working quite well. I love that. And but, by the yeah. way,
0: that kind of mentality creates a lot of judgment too, and separation between people, and superiority. I mean, it just opens. It just it's more and more negativity and separation and lack of unity. I mean, that's the opposite of what
1: religion is supposed to be. Yeah, and the and I think the uh, the hypocrisy of it too. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while in the show, usually when it's a scientist, uh, I'll encounter someone who is very atheistic. You know, if that's even a word. Uh, but we'll. I'll touch on God, and they're like, uh, I can just feel in their body language. They're like, uh, no, 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 no. You know, I don't go there. Do you probe a little bit. I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because I'm trying to find. Well, if you, it's like if you're an atheist. My perspective is that you, you don't believe in God, but you believe in something. You believe in no God, or you believe in science, or right. you believe in medicine, or you know, astrology, or whatever your thing is. But nobody doesn't believe in anything because you have to believe in something to have a motivation to. Go one direction or the other, right? You believe in your own intellect, perhaps, you know, but I notice there's pushback, and usually what it is when people are kind of anti-religion, it boils down to the judgment, as you said, and the hypocrisy, mm-hmm. the piousness, the one saying, you know i'm I'm free of all of all sin and all guilt. you are the ones that need to change. I mean, no human being likes to be put on a lower pedestal right. by someone who's supposed to be. Uh, you know, transmitting positivity to their life and teachings that are going to carry them. So I like that perspective. Uh, so, God, there's so many things I want to talk about. Sometimes the, I want these interviews to just be all day. I just want to go for five <laughs> or six hours. It's just like when I find someone as interesting as you seem to be so far, God, there's just so many different directions to go. Uh, I want to ask about the Zohar just because I'm fascinated with ancient texts and things like that. So, the Zohar is sort of, correct me if I got this wrong, but is is an interpretation of elements of the Bible.
0: It's not an interpretation, it's a decoding.
1: A decoding, so, okay.
0: For instance, if um, you read, and, and, and every word is chosen, so sometimes like words are repeated or names, I mean, even that is broken down. So why is that said twice? Or, you know, if it said that, Blah, blah, blah. Well, what that really means. And it's something that really you could study even just a verse for days. And then once you think you understand it, open the book again next year and you're gonna understand it differently because as your consciousness expands, your ability to understand also does. So yes, it's definitely a decoding. Um
1: and and who was there, a person behind writing it and
0: so it was given um from the creator. Okay. God to Rabbi Shimon, and then he put it into what is called the Zohar.
1: Right. And is the Zohar actually one big fat book or is it a bunch of them?
0: There's both. So there's one big volume, but it's Ah. very small print and there's no translation. Then we have a 23-volume set that has the Aramaic, which is what the language that it was written in. Then it's translated to Hebrew, and then it's translated to English, which is actually what my husband did when he was 21,
1: Wow. I mean, he got an early, early
0: start on this whole <laughs> wow. consciousness thing.
1: Okay. So that's, yeah, that that makes sense then. Because I feel like somewhere I remember, I mean, when you see the Zohar, yes. it's like a wall yes. of books. Yes. It's not just like, oh yeah, here's a little book at the Zohar. Enjoy that. It's like, oh, here's 10 lifetimes of study for you.
0: And then he actually wrote one of my favorite books called Secrets of the Zohar, which um, takes about 26 chapters. And he'll take one verse, which is, you know, four paragraphs then he'll translate it you have the hebrew then the english and then the explanation of what it is and then the meditation of how to achieve that consciousness and that's like that that will give you the biggest sense because it breaks it down so perfectly but that's one like that's just that's showing you like a speck of what the zohar is like there's so much wisdom there
1: wow that's that's incredible so uh does astrology have any play in this the system at all?
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you, what's your sign?
1: Uh, Scorpio, <laughs> my birthday's Monday.
0: Oh, happy birthday. Yeah,
1: but I'll be 48 on Monday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. I
0: hope you're gonna do something kind for yourself. I have
1: a recording that day, which is kind. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of work. I'm like, can I, I usually don't work on my birthday, but this isn't work. Having an enlightening conversation, I do have one recording and then I have to find something to do. I don't have that many close friends here. I have acquaintances and stuff. So it's not like my favorite you know,
0: thing to do on my birthday is to share. Like it's just the biggest high ever. And so usually whatever I'm asked to do on my birthday, I say yes to. I mean, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm a Virgo, my rising Scorpio. Oh, cool. So yes, it, there is something called Copalistic Astrology. It's based on the lunar solar calendar. Um, it was studied by Abraham and it's, you know, you... It's by a different system, right? So for instance, your birthday could be Monday, but if you look at the year you were born and the day you were born, sometimes you might not be a Scorpio. It'd be, you'd be a Virgo, or you'd be, um, sorry, a Libra, or you'd be a Sagittarius. Sometimes it shifts it a little bit. But it's very informative um, about, you know, because you'll see, I'm sure you've met other Scorpios and you'll say, wow, you know, I have that in common too. Or um, I see the world that way. Or there's kind of a, a similarity or a commonality with those signs. Then of course, there is the free will we spoke about. And then there's the rising sign and your moon and everything kind of impacts everything else. And then every seven years, there's a different cycle. And sometimes the um, planets shift and there's different influences on your life. So I find it as such a great tool, parenting my four children, because they're all so different. And for instance, my Aquarius, who's, you know, he's rising statues, all air and He's like, he does, his feet don't even touch the ground. He's just floating around his whole life. He's almost 20. And um, I couldn't just raise him the way I would raise, you know, the way I would raise a Virgo, for instance, because Virgos would be like, D- do this because this makes sense logically. And if you do this, then you'll get from here to there. And that's the fastest way and that's effective and it's practical. Okay, Sure. If I said to him, just the fact that I'm telling him what I think he should do, he's going to be repulsed by it and he's going to fight it because (laughs) Aquarians do not like to be told what to do under any circumstance. They're free spirits. They like to figure it out. They don't like bosses. They don't like rules. So to parent somebody like my son, David, I need to be very creative. Like, what do you think about this? I'm not sure it's a good idea, but if you do it that way, you know, it might work. Do you think that's a good idea? Okay. You know how exhausting that is, but having that information... Actually helps me be a better parent and helps me navigate. I think be a better boss, be a better wife, in terms of relationships. It's also which signs are compatible. Compatible. It's it's really, again, such
1: an amazing tool. Yeah, uh, I've not. I've done. I touched on one episode uh, with a, a girl named Ruby Warrington who's got a big site called The Numinous, and she's quite into astrology. And we we touched on it, but I haven't really delved much into it, just because it's not been something I've been really. Not against the idea, but i haven 't been really drawn to it
0: well maybe for your birthday i 'll give you a chart
1: oh really yeah, I mean oh, what I, I love, love about
0: Kabbalistic astrology again it 's by the lunar solar i mean there 's yeah. many different kind of ways to study astrology um, but yeah, I think that oh, you find that it would interesting. be amazing
1: yeah the the one thing, and I think i 've forgive me listeners if i 've said this a million times on the show in reference to astrology in general, but one thing I have definitely noticed is that in my life. Most of my primary relationships, romantic and otherwise, have been three signs: other Scorpios, Virgos, was and saying, Libras. I was gonna say, always. I mean, I meet someone, we get close, you know, friend or otherwise, and I'm always like, "What sign you? Virgo?" I'm like, "I knew it." What sign you? Scorpio? I knew it. Or Libra. Libra is like the third one. First is probably Virgo, then other Scorpios, then Libras. But it's I uncanny. I mean, it's like. It's beyond chance. There's just no way. I don't know any Gemini's, any Capricorns, any Sagittarius, any Aquarius, any of those other ones. Those are like nebulous, weird signs that I think don't nice. exist in, on Earth, but they just don't exist in my life.
0: But that's so interesting. And you've touched upon something really profound because, well, Virgo and Scorpio are, are the signs that get on the best.
1: Interesting. And, Both um, my parents are Virgos.
0: And they they attract one another. They balance one another. It's So I get along really well with myself being rising Scorpio. Um, also cancer is a really good sign for Scorpio. So it's, it's, um, water and earth or earth and earth, water, water, they get on. But it's interesting because I always, and Libra, I bet you the Libras that you've met, I mean, according to the lunar calendar, maybe they really were a Virgo because I don't know where it hit on the cusp. So there's that possibility too. Right. So my whole life also, I just, earth signs, um, my husband's a cancer sign and, uh, and now I've changed so much that I don't even feel very much like a Virgo. I mean, I carry myself like one. I look like one. I like things organized. If you come into my house, everything's spotless. But the, you know, Virgos also like comfort and they are perfectionists and they want everything, you know, there's right and wrong and judgmental by nature. And I could no longer list, live in that reality. It was too difficult for me and my own skin to be like that. Because if I'm judging outside, believe me, I'm judging myself even harsher So I really use the tools of Kabbalah to transform that and change that. And so now, you know, I used to never like to travel and I like my routine. Now don't get me wrong. I have a planner. I love an eraser. I mean, I still have those things, but I always have a suitcase by the door. We're always traveling. And I love that because I've really changed that part of myself. And now everybody around me, everyone, Gemini, Aquarius, Leo, I'm just surrounded because and all I just did my chart actually in September, all of my planets have moved into air and fire. So as you change and as you seek change, then you attract different things and your reality changes. I mean, it's like that across the board, even in terms of astrology.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I love learning about myself because I'm uh, self-obsessed and uh, I'll <laughs> <laughs> I read my chart. Okay, tell me more about me. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I love that sign, that line from the movie Beaches. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> ah, that's
1: great. That's great. Yeah, but it it is interesting the the um, astrology for that reason. It my is. mom was always really into it, and I think that's why you know I'm kind of aware of it in the periphery. But any time I'd bring home a girlfriend or a friend, my mom we just didn't even care about their name. Like, what sign are they? What sign are they? And she would ask them, "What sign are you?" And I was like, "Oh, mom," I was so embarrassed.
0: Yeah, but for sure, some signs are absolutely more compatible than others.
1: You know, what, what do you think in general about a, a Scorpio and Scorpio pairing of a couple?
0: I think it's going to be very intense, very sexual, a lot of chemistry, but um, somebody's going to have to be the more spiritual one because Scorpios are very emotional and um, they love to get even, you know, if, if you wrong them.
1: I've heard that. <laughs> people always, when I meet someone, they're, they're like, like, oh, you're a Scorpio, man. Like I better Scorpion, not, right? I better not mess with you. And I think, God, I guess there was a time in life where I was retaliatory to a degree, but not not outwardly, more just in thought, you know. But now, oh my God, no, I'm not like that at all. I'm like, bless and block. That's, and that's my the motto.
0: I mean, even if you're born under any sign, you can choose what you want to be. So right. that's what I, I don't like when people box things and, oh, you're this so you must be that and not at all. That's more of that judgment stuff. But just it's just kind of like a blueprint. You have this awareness. Now do whatever you want with it. You want to change? Change.
1: We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. This episode is brought to you by Thrive Market, one of my favorite places to get deep, deep discounts on all things non-GMO, organic, paleo, gluten-free, raw, vegan, etc. If you get your fingers typing over to thrivemarket.com forward slash Luke, here's what's going to happen. You're going to save an extra 25% off your first purchase and free shipping, and a free 30-day trial. Now, here's what's up that makes that even sweeter, is that Thrive Market is already quite literally 25 to 50% less than traditional retail prices on these type of products. So if you want the legit organic stuff and you've always felt like you can't afford it, that's for rich people, I have to eat McDonald's and all this GMO food because I can't afford organic You are mistaken, my friend. You can get all of your vitamins, supplements, personal care products, food, uh, safe and non-toxic beauty products, stuff for the kids, stuff for babies, all of that stuff. So um, it's totally doable. I'm here to tell you, thankfully, to Thrive Market. Here's the link to use if you want to get the bonuses, okay? Go to thrivemarket.com forward slash Luke. You don't need any code. If you use that URL, you're going to get your 25% off free 30 day trial and free shipping so you can go over there and get all of the goods you need they even have meat and fish and all kinds of stuff now so you can pretty much do all your grocery shopping there and guess what you don't even have to get your ass in the car and go anywhere you do it on your magical computer there, put in your order, and next thing you know, it's delivered to your doorstep. It's really fast shipping too, by the way. I'll order something and then kind of forget about it. Next thing you know, two or three days later, it's like, bing, I have a giant box at my doorstep. It's really cool. If you want to see me do a, a rad unboxing video where you can see what I shop for and what I eat and how much I save, just Google Luke Story Thrive Market. But more importantly, get over to thrivemarket.com forward slash Luke and just start putting that cart together and saving yourself some money. And now, back to the interview. I must be interested in this because I keep asking guests, but I interviewed a channel yesterday named Paul Selig, fascinating guy, and um, he tuned into his guides. And that's the answer they gave about It's like, yeah, there's there's an influence there, but your free will uh, can override that. In other words, nurture can sort of outweigh nature when it comes to astrology. But it is something to be aware of. Cool. Okay. I dig it. Uh, now on to a really deep and profound question, probably too much so, but uh, I think it's on top of mind because I have a friend, a dear friend that lives in Austin, Texas, and uh, his his kid, um, when it was, I don't know, maybe three or four or something like that, went in for a round of vaccinations and instantly, and I'm not saying it caused it, I'm not a you know, conspiracy theorist, but there was a correlation and immediately became like suddenly autistic horribly. And um so he's really having a hard time with that as you can imagine as uh, kids nonverbal how old is the child uh 6 i think uh as you i'm sure can relate to on one level um and so he's really struggling with this idea of god and he's formerly a pretty spiritual guy I was raised jewish but kind of found his own personal faith later and we talk sometimes cuz he's just really struggling mm-hmm. and he's like dude i just can't i can't pray Because I can't get around the idea that if there's this loving, all-powerful God, that it won't fix my kid. And I'm trying everything and nothing's working. Like, how is that possible? And I've found my own answers for that internally that I, of course, share with him. But in terms of Kabbalah, if there's a way that you could summarize, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And why is there evil and duality in a world if God is supposed to care about us?
0: So... Yeah, I mean, first of all, I feel his pain. That's It's, I think, so difficult, especially because his child was one way and then overnight is something else. And that loss is is very difficult to deal with. And I love this question because I think that people, you know, there was that book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And again, it goes back to what I said earlier. I don't, you know, I think that this is in his life for a reason. And sometimes we don't know what those reasons are and we won't know right? But he has a choice to make. And it can't be, you know, I remember when Josh was born, I was like, I've made deals with God. Like if you just, maybe the test was wrong, let's do it again. Or maybe this isn't how, you know, I, and I kept doing this and making deals and that's not, that's not the purpose. So I can share with my experience. Again, when he first came in the world, I thought, okay, I did something to deserve this. And, um, and that's it. I don't know how I'm going to navigate. How am I going to parent a child with special needs? And out of everything, why did it have to be his mind? You know, I, I can't. I always had a fear of that anyway. Speaking of fear, like my whole life of of the mind, losing the mind. So, and then I remember, you know, looking at my husband, I said, "Well, I don't think that he deserves bad things happen to him, and it's happened to both of us. So there must be something else here, right?" Because I wasn't able to see myself in that way and be kind to myself in that way at the time. So. It kind of allowed me to stop and say, okay, so what could be here? And I decided that, you know, in life, we never know what's going to be. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We assume that because somebody's born healthy, they'll be healthy forever. We assume that because somebody's born rich, they'll be rich forever. We have a lot of assumptions based on, you know, why not? Why shouldn't I have this? It should never go, right? So I realized in that moment, I mean, it took a few months that I realized his his problems or his issues or his limitations the day he was born. But I had a lifetime to find out his gifts. So I chose that, right? I chose to see the reality that I wanted to see and to live in that realm, which I did. And he's a blessing and he's a gift. And he's made me a better person, more empathetic, more connected to people, going out and doing what I do. I don't think that I would be living the life that I am, the way that I am to the extreme that I am, if I had not had him. So I I wouldn't change that for anything, right? I think with your friend it's a little more difficult because again he had something that was he saw as perfect and whole, and then it felt stripped away. So you have to blame somebody. I think it's human nature. I don't see God as punishing, and um, I see God as as all present and um, and wants us to be happy and fulfilled. And that's why we're given the tools to do that and the information to do that. But it has to be a choice that he makes. It has to be a decision that he makes. I mean, this happened and it's horrible. But if he starts to live his life in that realm, I mean, a miracle could happen. I would instead focus on you know, um, connecting with him wherever he's at and trying to bring him back to this space. I mean, again, that goes back to 1% and 99%. We don't know. I mean, maybe his child is living in a a space and he's really happy and he's connected to angels and God all day long. We don't (laughs) know because we can't see. We don't have access to that. So if I were him, the only solace I think that he will find and the growth and actually in the end, fulfillment is to just shift shift is complete perspective of what has happened and why it's happened. But that's a choice you'll have to make.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, what I kind of told him was just, I think it's, it's the 1% and the 99% is that from our limited perspective in space and time, where we are with a given challenge like that, it's, there's no way for us to be able to see we're too zoomed in. We're too myopic. It's like, we've got to be able to, going to outer space and look down at earth spinning around for thousands or hundreds or thousands of years, right? To be able to see, oh, that little blip of that one lifetime I had where I had this challenge that was insurmountable. And then you get to see the course of the sort of chain reaction that came about as a result of that. And that would be for a, a personal life and also for global humanity's sake. You can kind of watch the evolution the more you step back from it and see, oh, there's these little... Touch points along mm. the journey that were meaningful and necessary, even if when we were in that scenario, it seemed like the worst fate ever, right? Right. And, it,
0: and, it
1: goes back to your opening, which was like perspective. It's really how we're looking at it is it not
0: and and there's cause and effect I don't like for people to go there because then it, it can be like into that blame area of like oh I did something but we don't know what his soul was and what his son, child's soul was before they came down as father it's a boy yeah father and son right these are the roles they're playing to this title say their souls know each other there's something profound for him to discover here and again he doesn't he won't have access necessarily to that meaning. But there is something there and I would embrace that. And also, maybe this is going to help him, you know, become something else in the world and advocate for children who have, like, it's just endless if you look at it that way. Um, But to blame God, I, I just don't even feel, can be part of the conversation.
1: Excellent. Thank you.
0: You know, my father has Alzheimer's and it reminds me of that a little bit because, you know, for the first couple of years when he was, diagnosed and he wasn't on the proper medication. he was very angry. and I think that came from fear. and you know, I think he was terrified he was losing his memory and he felt like he was losing his mind and and it was very hard, I think, for all of us, our family, to connect with him and to still be loving to him and be present when his he you can't even find him there. And about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I just thought, you know, and it was because I moved here. So every time I went to go see him, I would really, every time I go to LA for like a week or two weeks, I would go and be with him every day. And I said, okay, I'm going to go into his environment. I'm going to go to where he hangs out in the day, his routine, and I'm going to go into his world as an exercise. I remember the first time I went, I was on on the phone with my friend and said, okay, I'm about to go see my dad. I just hope he remembers me because I hadn't seen him for a while. And as it is, even if I saw him every week, you know, would he recognize me? So I just decided I'm going to go there and I'm going to connect to him the way I always did. And I looked in his eyes and I would rub his face and I just said, I love you. I love you so much. I love you, dad. I love you. And just, I would do that for 15 minutes. I'd hug him. And then the most amazing thing would happen about 15, 20 minutes later, he would look at me and I know he recognized me because I saw it in his eyes. And he turned to me and he said, do you think I'm going to forget you? Don't worry. I'm never going to forget you. And since that time, we have those kinds of exchanges every time I go and visit. Sometimes, yes, he's silly or he'll speak in a, a made up language, but I'll go with it. And I'll say, you know, dad, what are you speaking? Is this because we're Middle Eastern? Is this Farsi? Is this um, the Abe language? Like let's, I, And I would laugh with him or like he would take his shirt off in the park. I'm like, dad, you know, if you want to go home, you can get undressed. There's like, yeah, I think I'll I just, if he wants to talk, like he's pretending he's in high school and he's going to take a test. Great. How did you do on your test? Right. And I thought, like, I don't know, maybe he's in a realm and he's so happy. I don't, I'm just going to connect to him wherever he's at. I'm not that smart, you know, just to be more simple about the things that happen in our lives. And I think that's the biggest obstacle. We get so consumed with the why and the injustice of it. And how could this happen that we're just not in the moment? Just live it.
1: Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So you got four kids, which I, th- I think at a time in our in our culture would have been like, yeah, of course, everyone has four kids. To me, I'm like, oh my god, having one kid just seems so overwhelming. But to have four, I know I
0: am outnumbered in my house
1: for sure. <laughs> right? Um, how has the lifestyle that you and your husband Michael live, and having you know so much involvement with Kabbalah and 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 what you do, how has that impacted your parenting style? Uh, how your kids have turned out and have any or all of them kind of embraced this uh, belief system themselves?
0: Well, this question is about something I'm very much in right now. Um, We have four kids, three of them are teenagers, and then the sweet five-year-old, which reminds me of why I had four in the first place, because I'm still like the sun and the moon and everything shines in my face when she sees me. I don't know how I would be able to be a good parent without Kabbalah, honestly, um, or a good wife, for that matter either. Um, Raise our kids with consciousness for sure. I feel very confident that they feel safe and that they feel like they understand that the world, they understand the world they live in. We give them space to find themselves. We read Kabbalah to them. We write about it. We talk about it. So, I feel like all the things that I didn't have growing up, and I was like, "What am I doing here? (laughs) Like, where where am I?" And nobody had answers. I feel like we are really giving them that environment where they do feel secure in the world. But like every family, I, I don't care if you study something spiritual, you don't. That transition from becoming a teenager then to becoming an adult, that is pretty much the same for everybody. You know, you're have hormones raising raging. You're trying to find out who you are, discover your voice your your own um, expression feel comfortable in your body and again the wisdom of kabbalah helps me navigate that but it still is what it is which is the honest answer
1: I've thank you for the honest answer that's my favorite kind <laughs> I've heard uh, somewhere that there's actually a you know a wiring within humans where when they reach puberty that nature actually makes them start loathing their parents to a degree (laughs) because nature is, is weaning them so that they can go off and become a fully integrated being on their own and have a sense of autonomy. Have, have you seen like just a natural shift as your kids get into their teen years where they're kind of like, yeah, leave me alone, mom, I'm not interested in you anymore, or I don't care about Kabbalah or whatever you have going on.
0: Well, it's interesting because there is a definite shift from, um, this, like, you know and it's dangerous too because I don't like pedestals on any level because you will not always be on one for somebody and then when they throw you off they just disregard you and I don't like the pedestal I don't want to be on the bottom either I just think that we just want to all connect from the same space but I think that it's normal for children to kind of idolize their parents we all do and you you know and then you start to see them as people and then you start to really focus on the flaws. And then hopefully you come back where you just love them and accept them. Um, but because the shift is so, I mean, I am very close with my children and I think that we have a very good and healthy relationship, but there is still that shift that does occur. And with my sons, not as much. I found with my older daughter, I have two boys and two girls there really was kind of like this push pill, like, I love you, hug me, hold me, don't touch me, don't kiss me. I, t- I need you, I want, no, don't tell me what to do. And I was like, oh my God, I need to research this. <laughs> <laughs> What's right. going on here? Oh, so no. what I think happens is that, you know, and there's studies on this, that when boys are growing up, they want to be becoming to their mothers. They want to really impress them. They want to make us proud. And eventually that then goes over to their significant other, their wife, their girlfriend that that thing of like, are you proud of me, gets transferred to them. And that's why in my relationship book, which is not the one we're talking about, I talk about how it's so important for women to acknowledge when their partners are like, look, I did this. And i be like, yeah, but you didn't do that. Because eventually they either have to, they're not going to like who they are, they're not going to like you very much, right? And girls want to be like their mothers. They want to become like their mothers. So when they go through these teen years, because girls both the children come from our bodies, but boys are a different sex. But because girls are the same sex, it's this dynamic that happens where in order for me to really become who I'm supposed to be and accept myself, I need to reject you. I need to reject you, not because I want to hurt you, but I can't find this because I came from you, because we're the same sex. I can't become what I need to while being still attached to you. So there is more of that kind of like, you know, separation or kind of like tension. And very often, you know, if there's a conversation I need to have and I feel like maybe she can't hear me, I'll just like tap my husband. I'm like, you got this one, you know, and, and there is, and I feel blessed to be in that kind of relationship also where we parent in that way. Um, But yeah, that, that does, that does happen.
1: I want to get into the topic of fear. I'm, I selfishly just always, like I said, I have so much, so I wanted to really (laughs) create this framework and make sure I answered all my other questions But this episode will likely be called something blah, 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 Kabbalah, fear. Those two words would probably be in there. So we covered the first part, I feel adequately. Uh, But I found your book fascinating because fear in general, I would say in my own life, has been the biggest impedance to progress uh, on all levels, material, spiritual. It's just there. It's this thing. And so I want to unpack that a little bit and help people to find some solutions to overcome their own fears, because I don't care how tough you play on the outside, all human beings are freaking terrified most of the time, (laughs) you know, all you have to do is turn on the news, then you'll see fear, 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 fear. That's all that is, right? Uh, So you, you, you sort of uh, delineate three types of fear, Uh, healthy fear, real fear and illogical fear. So I'd love it if you could break those down for us.
0: Sure. So healthy fear is something that we all need healthy, right? It's that feeling that we get in our gut. You want to call it intuition. Um, You know, if you're about to get into an elevator and somebody else is already in there and something doesn't feel right to you, that feeling that kind of comes up for you is there to protect you. It's to make sure that if you feel uncomfortable, you see something that could hurt you, you pause and you step back. You know, the same thing if you're, hiking and you're too close to the edge of a cliff, you feel that feeling where it's like, wait, I need to step back or I could get hurt or your hand over an open flame. You're not going to go too close to it. It's that warning system that we all have and that we need to keep, right? Um, In my book, I talk about the story of Carol Durant, who was from Murray Hill, Utah. And when she was 17, she um, was approached by a police officer at a park. And he said, you know, Your car has been broken into and we just found the suspect. We apprehended him. He's at the station. Come back with me in my car and uh, I want you to see if he has any of your belongings. So she had that feeling, right? Something didn't feel right, but she looked at his badge. She asked for it. He showed her. She decided to go with him in the car. So they're driving along and um, she notices they're going in the opposite way from the station. So she starts to question him. And because she had that feeling, she already had one hand on the handlebar. And he goes to grab her hand, is trying to handcuff her, and she was able to get away. So a few weeks later, she was reading the newspaper a week later, and she saw that on that same day, somebody was taken and killed. And it was by a serial killer, Ted Bundy. So basically, she that was her. And she is one of the few to have ever escaped him. So this kind of healthy fear is something very necessary to keep. Then there's real fear. It's based in reality, like death, fear of public speaking, fear of um, old age, illness, losing our loved ones. It's things that actually do occur and those are real. But even with real fear, we can use it as an as a indicator for change. So if you're afraid to of illness, well, then you can make healthier choices with your lifestyle, Right. If you're afraid to lose your loved ones, then make sure every day you tell them that you love them and you spend time that's meaningful and purposeful. So again, that fear is a good one to hold on to. Then there's a logical fear. And that's the fear that really paralyzes um, most of us. It's the one that uh, keeps us worried, frantic, it tells us that we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We can't do the things that we want to do. Fear of failure, fear of spiders and hel- and um, elevators and heights and roaches. I mean, it's endless, right? So that is the fear that we want to get rid of. And those are the stories that we have in our head. You know, like somebody's going to attack us. Like all of that, that noise is what keeps us from living our best life. It keeps us from going after our dreams. And we just feed that fear day in and day out.
1: Would you say that at the core of all types of fear is ultimately the fear of physical death?
0: No, I think what's at the core of every fear is the fear of the unknown. And I don't think people realize that, right? So they, so fear of death, well, that is an unknown, right? Um, If you look at any fear that comes up, it really is the fear of this existence that we have that uh, that that feeling of like, well, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? And that's part of life, right? That's a challenge for our life. And, and we respond to that fear. But if we understand we fear the unknown, but we don't know anything, right? If we accept the first part of our conversation, that we are limited by what we do know and what we see, then you can be free of that too.
1: Interesting. Because I, I always feel like when my instincts are starting to flare up and fear comes, it's just because... I'm not going to be safe and at the end of not being safe is death. But from your perspective, the way you just framed it, if it's fear of the unknown, it's, death might be awesome. It might be. But we don't know that. But if it, I die right now, I might get out of body and be like, oh my God, peace out, earth. Good luck, wars and earthquakes. I'm done and I'm off in some celestial realm just living the dream. But, but I don't I, know that. So I'm like, I hope no one's coming to kill me right now.
0: It's funny. you know. I spent the first part of my life really afraid of dying. And uh, I mean, really, like it would come up in my head a lot. And then I realized that it's because I didn't feel like I was really living, that I really wasn't doing what I was meant to do and I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. And and kabbalistically, you know, again, what you do, the more that you do for the greater good, you know, the death process is going to be much easier too, by the way. That whole suffering thing is for people who really like that because it cleanses. There's a cleansing that happens when a person leaves the world. So that inspires me again to, um, and now I don't think about death. I rather, I want to think about life. Like what more can we do for one another? What more can we do for the world? How can we be a vehicle for change? Like that's what I want to be busy thinking about. And if you're busy putting energy there, this whole noise, death and the unknown, and I'm afraid it's just going to be muted. There's just, there's nothing like, you're not even responding to that. You're not living in that reality at all.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's really good because I feel like when I'm living on purpose, that I am doing as much as I possibly could, you know, and the way that I do things with the podcast and all this, I mean, I'm extra. I go like full on. If I go to New York, I'm like, oh, I do a couple of recordings this week. I'm going to do two or three a day and I'm yeah. just going to go. And I have all these different channels that it's going out on just because I'm extreme for whatever reason.
0: Scorpio.
1: Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I've learned <laughs> to channel it toward positivity for the most part these days. But I increasingly, as a result of doing what I believe I'm here to do, and also just getting a little bit older, I find myself less concerned with the when of leaving this body, because I think I've kind of really turned it around. And for the most part, I have a positive reverberation of impact on the world in general and people that I'm around. I tend to think I'm pretty kind and loving most of the time, Uh, make mistakes, but... Uh, prior to living on purpose, I didn't feel that way. It was like, God, if I die, it's like, I'm not done. I've, right. I'm, I'm unrealized. See, I've not accomplished the task at hand, which was to terrifying. do the best I could with yeah. the time that I had. That said, and I want to see. But more. I want
0: to just add one more thing. Yeah, I also yeah. don't believe in um, giving energy and, and a lot of thought to things that you can't control. Like you know, I love it when I'm like, after I work out and there's chatter in the, Locker room, and they're like, "Oh, this weather," you know. And I'm just thinking, like, why are we talking about this? We can't change it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's the same thing with death. Like, all you can do is decide how you want to live.
1: Something I do periodically, just to face the reality that I'm only going to be here for a a finite number of years, hopefully many more. uh, But I'll often stop in um, cemeteries and just take a moment and just realize that you know those people thought they were going to be here forever. Those bodies in the ground, and now they're not. And it won't be all that long in the great scheme of things before I'm in there. And I find that to be an uncomfortable practice. And it's not something I do every day. It's just I pass by, I think about it. Like I walk into churches too, same thing. I just, not religious, but I'll walk into any church or synagogue for that matter and just be like, huh, cool. Imagine how many people have prayed here since 1846 or whenever the damn thing was built, you know? And it's just, it's like stepping out of that time paradigm. But I do that periodically with, with cemeteries. Um, to the degree that one time in fact in uh the rural um outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, I went and visited a graveyard to just kill some time and hang out and contemplate, wow, how precious life is while I'm here. And they had dug an empty grave that had yet to be filled. That's and I thought so hmm, <laughs> let's take this a little further. And so I just went and laid down in the dirt in Did the grave. You really? Yeah. I put on Instagram too and uh you know
0: how'd that feel
1: you know it felt pretty uncomfortable it did Not scary like ooh, goblins are gonna get me it wasn't like night of the living dead fear it was or anything like that or even discomfort but it was just like wow this is this is really it this is the deal you're this meat suit that we're cruising around in is only here for a while and eventually it's gonna get burned up or sit in the ground and be eaten by microbes uh but it was a sobering, uh, was a sobering experience. But definitely a little bit eerie, you know. Mm-hmm. I stayed in there for I don't know two or three minutes and just kind of prayed and looked at the sky and just imagined, wow, this we're going to end up someday as vertical. Uh, I have not done that particular exercise since. since yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think mission was accomplished. I got the impact of that and and had more gratitude for my life. And and I would say mm. not. In part, have lived my life with a higher degree of purpose, having done things like that, and just like funny,
0: my husband, um, you're the only person I've ever heard kind of say that. And we, we, you know, we've gone to many funerals, and with what we do, we're there for a lot of different people, and I I always get really just sad, and it's sobering. But he actually gets like happy in a way. I'm like, why are you? I mean, of course not if it's a close. I'm like, why? He's like, no, I just, I, I, I so appreciate that we are alive and what we can do. And it's like, and that's basically what you're saying. I mean, I don't think he would have crawled into the ground, but <laughs> yeah. um yeah, I think that's a, there, I think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. I do too. It, fe- it feels good. Not in an obsessive way, but just as an acknowledgement and also an appreciation, appreciation of what's here. And I think, you know, the stuff that you've gone through in your book that you shared, uh the trials and tribulations in your life that have led you to be the woman you are today and myself have gone through a lot of very challenging Scenarios like they were many deaths along the way. you know there's deaths of preconceived ideas and ego deaths and mm-hmm. deaths of relationships and careers and all sorts of things that we um tend to be really uh put um, uh, put out by and and facing the big one, the big death, and kind of acknowledging that as a reality, I find for me helps me to integrate those small deaths along the way with a little more equanimity mm-hmm. yeah so. What's the difference between fear and anxiety? Well, from your perspective,
0: I think anxiety is um, heightened fear. Really, I think it's all connected. I mean, stress is fear, also, right? So any of those kinds of emotions are connected. To that I think anxiety is very. I mean, of course, there are people who have who suffer from disorders, and there's different things. But when we when when we have anxiety, I think it's really the soul telling us that however you're living or whatever you're doing is not okay. Like your body, your soul, you're not comfortable. Like you're acting in ways. Because I, I have had two anxiety attacks and um, one was right after I had Josh. But both times it was this kind of like, I can do better and I'm not living up to that. And it was that disconnect, that discomfort in my body. Really my soul saying, I'm, I'm not What's going on here? We're not going in the direction we should. Um,
1: yeah. So would you say anxiety is is more of a general sensation, whereas fear is more acute and uh, and focused?
0: Yeah, I think fear is just always. Again, it's how much energy you give it. I think that it's always there, waiting for us to grab it. Like, are you going to give energy that you're going to feed the fear? I right. think anxiety is just that. Like, heightened. Like, I can't. I can't take it anymore. It's, it's kind of like if you put it and you compress it together, That's that's anxiety. But I think this kind of fear is just something
1: we all live with unless we choose something else. Right. So there's just sort of a hum in mm-hmm. the background that's available to us should we Whenever. not have the tools or the awareness yes. to get out of it. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about those tools. So in your book, you've got seven tools that you point out. The first one being naming your fears. Tell us a little bit about this process.
0: So if you call your fear out, usually we we are so uncomfortable by the fear, we don't even want to talk about it or we don't want to admit it, we don't want to say it out loud. If you name it and you say what it is and you really look at it, it's not, first of all, it's not as scary, right? It's like having secrets and it's a dark room. As soon as you turn the light, it's a little less scary. It's not that bad, right? So I think part of it is just saying what it is. And when you really focus on what the issue is, then you can look for a solution. Um so I think the first thing is to really say, you know, is it is it the unknown? Is it de- like, what, then what do you want to do about it? And then you have options. So first you have to name it and look at it.
1: Name it meaning what's the underlying fear. Yeah. So say, you know, I show up to check into my hotel late What's going and I'm afraid I have anxiety about it. What's going to happen they're they're I' going to show up and they're going to What's say the "Oh we, worst thing that yeah, we happen. gave you room to someone else. So I think that's the thing I'm afraid of. No, the thing I'm ultimately afraid of is having to sleep out on freaking Ludlow Street <laughs> tonight, right? So is that what you mean? like kind of looking at you Look, know where uh, that dissected. fear ends? absolutely right? okay.
0: absolutely, or you know, I had a big fear of elevators before I moved to New York. And for a while, it was like, well, why did this happen? Was I locked in a box And I was literally, like, where is this coming from? And then I said, you know, it doesn't matter where it is, it's here and what do I want to do about it. So if I was, first of all, my desire to move to New York was greater than the fear, I decided. And I decided to let go of the fear, right? I'm not going to keep flying. And I, I have climbed up 20 flights of stairs before to avoid an elevator, um, but that's not practical in New York City. So I decided I had to get rid of the fear and, and there are different tools I used to do that, but... I make myself very comfortable. Like if it's a if it's an old, old, small, stuffy elevator at the time, I wouldn't choose to go in. Then I took baby steps with it. I'd bring a bottle of water with me. You know, I'd go in the elevator in working hours. So if there was a problem, somebody could help me have a cell phone, right? But if you just look, what is the fear? What's the worst that can happen? And you say, okay, if that happens, then I have these options. It's really almost that easy. You remove a lot of it just like that.
1: I have a similar thing with elevators, but it's not fear. It's this crushing awkwardity that I feel when I'm in the elevator with other people. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm an extrovert too, but elevators are really weird. I think because there maybe is some undercurrent of fear in general of us being like kind of claustrophobic and boxed in and you're flying up and down, uh, you know, on some little cable, but... Yeah, when I get in elevators, it's one of the reasons that I wouldn't live in New York because you just spend so much time in elevators that and so funny. that seven minutes or whatever it takes, I'm just like, oh, this is so awkward because no one talks to each other. And then if you're the guy, it's like, hey, how you guys doing? Everyone's like, dude, who's the weird guy? That's, we don't talk in elevators. You're breaking code here. So I'm, I'm super uncomfortable in elevators. That's one of the only times I'm like, oh, God, I just am like crawling in my skin. But it's not because I fear being hurt. It's just I don't want to be in there with people. Yeah, anyway, I'll see my psychiatrist (laughs) about that. Then number two in the seven tools that you give is burning your fears. What do you mean by burning your fears?
0: So again, um, our thoughts, our words, everything is an energy and it all has power. So if you, and that's why I really believe in journaling, if you take the thought out and you write it down, first of all, it's already outside of you so you can look at this in a different way and say, okay, is this real? But then you take it a step further. If you burn it, it's like you're removing... Um, you're removing it from the the physical world. Like you're taking it out and, it, and you know, cabalistically, when you burn things, it kind of removes that altogether. So it's a really great tool. And there's different um, names and, and meditations that you could do that actually enhances that as well. But if you just even don't have a real fire, you can think about what the fear is and just burn it, just remove it. I mean, part of what keeps our fear alive we energy,
1: did. yeah. We do. Yeah. We
0: carry them around and we keep feeding them every day and giving them energy every day. If you do this exercise, for instance, and now you've burnt this away, well, okay, where's the fear? It's not here anymore. That's and if you cool. do that day after day, eventually it will dissipate.
1: Just don't burn it in an elevator. Yeah, right. <laughs> what about number three, diminishing your fears?
0: And that's that goes back to putting them in the three categories, right? Oh, okay. Healthy, real, illogical. And then... It's just, it's really just breaking it down, um, to, then there's nothing left in it. To
1: its some parts, it's sort of like dissecting it and, and thereby diminishing it because now it's not like one unknown thing that's sort of weighing on us, but we've dissected the different parts and realized it was kind of a boogeyman.
0: Exactly. And, you know, that's why I named the book Fear is Not an Option, because if it's not, then you need to find something else that's going to be a solution, right? Um... And and one of the biggest ways to do that is when you find yourself in a fearful place, you ask yourself, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? What would you do? So go do that.
1: Mm, That's good. I have a lot of fear around um, making myself vulnerable, like pitching myself for stuff, uh, emailing people that are some big people that I want to do some big thing with. And I'm like, I'll craft this Creative email, spell check it a million times, and I'm about to click send. And I'm like, I'll feel my heart rate go up. And I go, What the hell? What's up with that? And it's you know, it's a fear of rejection or whatever. And so that's what
0: it is. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I, I actually kind of do that. The, you know, it's like doing the opposite. I'll just like type it and I just go, send, send, send. And I just blast them out you have to. without even thinking about it. And I've gotten quite quite good at that habit now and not laboring over like, oh, what if, what if, what if? It's just like when I start to sense that, I'm just like, send bye and move on to the next thing. For better, for worse, sometimes for worse, if it if I went off half half cocked, sometimes happens. Uh what's number four, trim tabs?
0: Um, so I love this idea because I think when we approach change, we think it has to be this big thing that you kind of tackle and it's gonna happen in this way. But the way change actually occurs, it's small change after small change makes great change. And that's how you have to approach your fear. It's not like suddenly you're gonna just say, Okay, I'm gonna do the thing I'm most afraid of and I'm going to succeed at it. You want to trim away at it slowly, slowly, slowly. Um, And I applied it to fear because there's this, um, his name's Fuller. There's these tiny rudders that he created that are attached to ships, right? So if you have a ship and it's going, you want to turn it, the rudder turns first, this little tiny thing, and then the whole ship moves. So it's that visual, right? If you have fear, instead of trying to break the whole big fear, just do one little aspect of it and change it slowly and eventually you chip away at it.
1: Cool. And I then, just
0: again I think we make things way too complicated and yeah. so
1: big. Well I like I mean, that's what one of the things that I liked about your book is you're tackling a huge complex human dilemma. But it's a relatively simple solution. <laughs> you it know? is. It's not It's not. It's not even e- even coming from a kabbalistic point of view. It's still not that mystical and esoteric. It's sort of like, oh yeah, I can do that. I'm afraid to send an email. Cool, just click send before you can think about it. Oh, there you go. No and more fear. also, you know? if,
0: if you get rejected, it's not because what you're offering is invaluable. It's just that it's not for that person. Wow, what a gift. Why would you want to waste your time with the wrong person? Yeah. Same thing with relationships, right? So I just think that, again, if you just look at everything, it's just like, with, with really wanting to understand and see it a different way because sometimes we're so invested in how we feel about something that we're not open to something else. But if you look at it from that perspective, then really, it's not that bad.
1: What about number five, make your anti-fear mantra?
0: Public speaking is a good example because a lot of people fear that. In fact, most people compare it to death. It feels like dying. Um, but if you are going to give a speech and... Um, you get up there and you're, you're thinking, oh, you know, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate what I have to say. Nothing's going to make sense. They're going to think I'm not an expert in this. My mouth's going to get dry. I'm going to feel um, shaken. I'm going to be nervously. Uh, it's going to be visible to everybody. That's where your head is at. Your anti-fear mantra would be, when I get up there, everybody's going to hear what I have to say. I'm going to be received with warm, welcome arms. I believe in what I'm saying. I am prepared and um, I believe in myself, right? So you take your greatest fear and then you give yourself the absolute opposite and you create a different dialogue and you go and believe that and do that.
1: That's cool. Uh, there's a woman I interviewed named Byron Katie, a spiritual teacher. It's just one of my favorites and she does something called the work. And it could be, you could do the work on fears, but generally it's about a grievance or resentment you have with someone else. Oh, I can't believe this a-hole did this to me. And, you know, you're ruminating on that. And so you'll do the work and essentially do inquiry as to the validity of the thoughts that you're having that are causing your suffering. And so the question one is like, well, not question one, but one of the questions is, is that true? It's the same kind of thing. And it's like, it's so fast and so simple that I'm thinking, oh, this person did such and such because of this. Well, can I really know that that's why they did that? Mm, not really. And then finally, who would I be without that thought? Well, I would be free and I'd be happy. Well, then why am I still choosing to believe that thought? You know, it's like sometimes the the answers are so simple with that that paradigm shift, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, if you give somebody the benefit of the doubt, it looks like this, but I don't know the reasons why it could be. Um,
1: Yeah. So I like the idea of turning the fear around and just, uh, oh, I'm afraid they're not going to do this because they think I'm a loser. It's like, no, I'm awesome. That's why they're definitely going to be super excited to hear from me or whatever. You know, it's cool. And then what about number six, engage your body?
0: So that's the um, power pose, Superman pose. I don't know if you saw, there was an episode in Grey's Anatomy where it's this idea that if you stand up like a superhero, you know, your legs open, standing up tall, hands on your hips, and you stand there for a few minutes and you breathe in like that. And they've done studies on this, actually, um, that people who are afraid to, like even surgeons about to go into surgery or you're about to take an exam or give a lecture, whatever it is, you stand like that for three minutes, they show a marked improvement in their what they've done and their abilities. Um, they've achieved much higher. So it's just about getting up, being confident, taking a breath in, chest up tall. And by doing that simple pose, they, studies show that you are already guaranteed to perform better.
1: That's so awesome. Mm-hmm. I love those sort of human behavior studies. There was one about the power poses where they did... Uh, they took a a test group of subjects and they had them go on job interviews. And they would do these like power poses and body language exercises before they went in for the interviews. And all the people that did the exercises got hired and the ones that didn't, didn't, you know, for the most part. I mean, it's a rough estimation of the test, but it's interesting how your physiology can actually affect you psychologically. A thousand percent. And conversely. And it's funny because I think maybe just hearing about that or... Might have been something I picked up in kundalini yoga, but before I do some podcasts, if I have the opportunity, although I'm not as nervous to interview someone, but when I do public speaking or do workshops and stuff, if anyone could see what I'm doing, like (laughs) behind the curtain in the other room, I'm doing breath work and I'm like, ah, putting my tongue out like a lion and I'm like, ah, just ready to kill and conquer, you know, and then I come sit down and I'm very calm and probably seemingly confident. Uh, but I do definitely use that. So I love that number six, engaging your body. It's so powerful to change your mind.
0: Well, it's all body, mind, and spirit, right?
1: Yeah, this is true. The last question I have, well, technically second to last, because I have one canned last question that I always do. But I'm curious um, where and if meditation in a classical sense fits into the framework of Kabbalah.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um like the burning your fear, how there were uh, different Hebrew letter combinations that come together and by, by looking at those words, it kind of opens the mind. Um, but it's basically taking meditation as you would see, most people do it in the traditional sense, and then applying the different uh, letter sequences that are in Hebrew. And uh, together with that and the understanding, you can again be in a different state where you remove um, what you're feeling in in the physical world and also just change your reality. Very often, I'll visualize myself in Israel or at a spiritual site I've been to and I'm really fully there, right? And I'm able to put myself there and operate from my higher self, especially living in New York City when, you know. So yeah, absolutely, it's a
1: big part of Kabbalah. So the mechanics of it involve Sitting for a period of time? Generally, how, how long or is there even a set period of time?
0: No, there's not a set period of time. I think it's up to the person. I, it's more about the tools that you use when you're in the meditative state.
1: And you're visualizing in one case yourself being in a situation or in a location that has some relevance or... or that
0: light's been revealed. Ah, uh, okay. Which makes it a special place. Like you were saying, when you go to a church and it's, you know, from the 1800s... and there's an energy there. You can't take that away. Right. When I went to Rome and I was walking the streets, I was like, well, this happened here and that, and you feel that, right? It's undeniable. So in Israel, there's a lot of places like that as well. So very often, and there's different places for different things. Like one is about protection and another one is for healing. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I would put myself there. And then that coupled with the different Kabbalistic meditations that are also, there's something called the sphero, which are different dimensions. And they, they go to different parts of the body. So there's, there's, again, it's a very deep kind of, um, but there's many tools to use and, and it's up to the person how long they do that, but usually twice a day.
1: Oh, cool. Wow. Neat. That's interesting stuff. And then for my official final question. Yeah. So I've learned a lot from you today as, uh, have our, uh, audience members who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and in any capacity that our audience might be able to go look up and study under.
0: Well, I always say that I think I, you can learn from everybody and everything. And uh, and that really is how I approach life. Like, I think that, I mean, I learned a lot from you too today. And every exchange that we have is is there for a reason. I, I love a lot of different authors. I'm really inspired by David Foster Wallace, even though he had a very kind of, he ended up committing suicide. He had a very dark kind of life. But I'd like to see how people view the world. Anna Quindleyn is another favorite author of mine of course all of the Kabbalists are my greatest teachers and um, it's hard it's hard to put it in just three you know
1: I know I kind of do that on purpose (laughs) (laughs) It might be the hardest question of my entire interview. (laughs) No, that's great. That's fine. Uh, And then where can people find you, your work, your books, websites, social media, anything that you'd like us to include in the show notes for the episode?
0: Thank you. Um, My blog is called RethinkLife.today and my book's available on Amazon. And uh, yeah,
1: follow me. And if someone, aside from the, the three recommendation question, if someone was just like, wow, this Kabbalah sounds cool. I want to dive into that. What, how could they get in touch with the Kabbalah Center? Where would be a good starting point for them to find that community, the teachings, etc.?
0: So we have a bunch of locations all over the world. We have three and a half here in New York. Um, but there's also Kabbalah.com, which is great. But it come into any location. We're in Los Angeles and Florida. Israel, Brazil, I mean, all over Mexico. So yeah, I would say go to com or just come. We're on 48th Street. Cool.
1: And so there'll be services and things like that. There's that one always, could always something.
0: There's classes um, four nights a week. There's new moon celebrations where we celebrate the energy of the month. There's weekend connections. There's, yeah. Cool.
1: Awesome. I might have to go check that out. It's funny because uh, the one on Robertson I've been driving by for years and oftentimes see people around. It seems to be pretty active property. because I do yoga right down the street at um, Yoga West. Yeah. Periodically. And every time I go to yoga and I'm like, oh man, I got to go check out a Kabbalah class or, you know, some sort of activity there. So maybe even
0: maybe while you're here.
1: Yeah. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Ooh, maybe it'll be my birthday present to myself. Take yeah. a Kabbalah class. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for thank your time you. and thank wisdom you. today. It's been really neat to get to know you and uh, and have um, you share all of this amazing knowledge with us in the audience. So I appreciate it and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much. In reviewing this episode with our guest, Monica Berg, you know, I was thinking about how much fear dominated my early life. And uh, I was thinking, you know, when's the last time I was really afraid to do something? I mean, aside from the obvious stuff like bungee jumping and you know, skydiving and the things you should be afraid of and that I'm never going to do because it's just, it's not that I'm afraid of it. It's just dumb. Why would I do that? But no, I'm talking about the internal fear, you know, the fear of execution, the fear of rejection, the fear of, in many cases, success uh, for me, at least professionally speaking. And one of the scariest things I've done in the past couple of years was making the decision to start a podcast and record episode number one. Episode number one was the thing that I put off and procrastinated for a long time. Now, you just listen to episode 179. Next week is, of course, 180 with Lacey Phillips from Free and Native. So we're getting up there in the numbers. But way back in number one, it was called Return of the Jedi. That was the uh, introductory episode where I told my life story. And I already had about, oh, I want to say... 10, 15 episodes with guests in the can at that point. And I'd been sitting on them for about six months to the point where a few of the guests started to email me and be like, hey, what, whatever happened to that interview that we did a few months ago? Are you going to put out a podcast or what? Because the way I did it, you know, my strategy was to get a bunch in the can and then just you know, blast them out onto iTunes all at once. I think I did 10 in a row for 10 days to just kind of make a little splash and get a bunch under my belt in a short period of time. It was a good strategy. Uh, for that, but what wasn 't good is that, in order to put those out, I had to do number one Return of the Jedi, which again was my story and uh I was terrified to be that open and vulnerable about my life experience now, that said, when I put out episode one on June six two thousand and sixteen, you know not too many people heard it, so my fears weren 't even that <laughs> realistic. Uh, because no one had heard of me or the podcast, of course, at that point, having been the first show. But I was aware, just because I've worked and lived in Hollywood for a long, long time, that once you put something out in the, uh, in the old web it's kind of there. And so I made a decision at some point, you know what? F-U-C-K, fear. I'm just going to do me. And it was a huge turning point in my life. Uh, At that point, because like once I decided to give zero Fs and just say, hey, listen, like this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is the life that I've led so far. And this is why I'm doing, you know, it was the why. It's like, this is why I'm doing this podcast uh, is because I've (laughs) had a rough life and I've found a lot of answers to overcome that roughness. And I'm obsessed with sharing things that work with people. You know, when I'm suffering in any way and I find a solution, I'm just so compelled to share that with as many people as I can, because I think that much of our suffering is unnecessary. And, you know, we learned this today in this episode with Monica Berg, you know, that these, these fears are just, you know, they're part of our survival mechanism, but there is a way to overcome them. And so when I finally recorded episode one, my life story, uh, it was a huge turning point for me. And from that point, moving forward, I really just started kind of doing my thing. And, you know, if some people like it, cool. If some people don't, that's fine too. Uh, I've become relatively immune to trolls, um, negative criticism. I am completely transparent and vulnerable and open when I'm, you know, a guest on other podcasts or when I speak at conferences and events and do the things that I do in a public way, because what I find is the more I push through that fear and just accept myself and love myself and just be sloppy and be messy and be real and as authentic as I possibly can, uh, the more that people reflect back to me that they're now given permission and feel safe and comfortable to do the same. And so I think as we embrace long form media, like this podcast right here and many others um, like it and certain channels on YouTube, etc., you know, the Media that's still independent and isn't beholden to advertisers and multinational corporations that control mainstream media, which by any estimation, at least to me, is largely worthless. I really enjoy independent media um, such as this, not only because I'm a purveyor of it, but because I'm a consumer of it. You know, I love to have um, the ability to listen to long form conversations and get realness. And what I'm observing in the industry is that everyone's sort of letting their guard down and talking about things that even five years ago would have been completely taboo. Uh, Discussing childhood trauma and abuse and issues with addiction and mental illness and all these things that have sort of been relegated to the shadows of society for so, so long are now coming to light. And so as I wrap up this year and, uh, and this episode specifically with our guest on fear, I'm just reflecting on The fact that it feels so good to uh, face the fear, to walk through anxiety, to walk through doubt and have the faith that um, with some level of intuition and discernment, we can find a way to uh, express our truth in the world uh, for the benefit of all who care to listen. And so I want to thank you for being a participant in my journey and encouraging me um, to take on the challenge. And every show that I do is a challenge, you know, to do the intros and the outros and read the ads and sit down with the guests. I mean, there's always a little bit of trepidation and um, I don't want to say fear might be a strong word, but I get a little nervous before the interviews. Sometimes I don't feel prepared or I feel like I'm um, in some cases, you know, out of my element on a topic or, you know, things just go wrong with the equipment and I get all freaked out for a second or whatever the case may be. But This podcast has been a real learning experience for me and it would not be possible for me to use this as a vehicle for growth if you, my friend, yeah, that's right, you, I'm talking to each and every one of you, weren't on the other end listening to this and sharing it with your friends and taking part in the journey. So I guess I said all that to say that um, walking through fears and embracing courage and bravery is just so worth it, man, because it's it's a compound sort of net game, I guess you could say, and that each time I push through a little fear, it enables me to more easily push through the next one, which might even be a big one, you know, sending the scary email, uh, facing possible rejection from the world at large or even from individuals and putting myself in situations where I'm uncomfortable continually seems to have a way to make me feel more comfortable in all situations over the course of time. So, it's just fantastic to be able to have this experience and to share this experience with you. Speaking of experiences, right before I recorded this episode, you know, I always say this stuff and I'm like, it sounds like I'm full of shit, like I'm just making this up, but I swear to God, uh, God is my witness. I am not. Right before I turned on the mic and recorded, I stood across the room from this microphone. Um, buck naked for about 15 minutes in front of my Juve red light device. Now, I went to kundalini yoga teacher training today. I mean, a dog, you do... How many hours? Like 10 hours of kundalini yoga. I came home and I was smoked, but I'm on a deadline to get these intros done. So I stood in front of the Juve. I made an elixir. I had um, some qualia. Um, what else did I have? Some paracetam some other stuff I don't have time to go into. Oh, some cordyceps mushrooms. And um, yeah, and I stood in front of the Juve, pounded that, and then did a little breath work, did a kriya, got my brain turned on. And that red light lit me up, folks. So if you want to try some photo biomodulation, aka red light therapy, here's what you do. You go to juve.com and enter the code Luke at checkout for a free gift. That's juve, J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash Luke. The red light therapy is seriously off the damn chain. Next up, we've got Beekeeper's Naturals. Let me see, when did I last use that? Oh, straight up this morning. uh, Before I went to my Kundalini Yoga Extravaganza, I put some Beekeeper's Naturals uh, honey in my Bulletproof coffee, which is weird because I never do that. But for some reason today, I just thought, you know, I don't want a super bitter... I mean, when I say coffee, my coffee is like... I mean, there's not even, it's not even a coffee at the end. It's like so full of herbs and insanity. But I wanted something a little sweet today. So I put some super organic, chronic Beekeepers Naturals uh, honey in there. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST, and save 15% off their fantastic bee products. Next thing is we've got a Thrive Market. I always, I don't know why like I'm getting on like, when did I use that last? Okay, straight up. So I moved out of my office with School of Style a couple of days ago. We decided to give up our office. We're an online business now. We teach people how to be a fashion stylist. School of Style, been doing it for 10 years. Don't talk about it a lot on the show because it doesn't have a lot to do with meditation or biohacking or whatever else I talk about, but it's my gig. And, uh, So I cleaned out the office and we always ordered from thrivemarket.com forward slash Luke. That's thrivemarket.com. And I emptied out the cabinets over there and I had all these amazing foods, you know, almonds, almond butter, coconut oil, ghee, uh, all my snack foods, beef jerky, like all the things that I just kind of keep around to snack on when I don't want to make a real meal, I get from Thrive Market and you get... Serious, serious discounts on non GMO organic food there. So, if you're one of those people that's like, I can't eat organic, I can't afford it, first of all, we need to get you working with Lacey Phillips to get out of the poverty mindset. That's straight up, that's next week's show. But because that's what I'm working on myself all the time, too. I practice what I preach. But next thing is, uh, if you get your food at Thrive Market, it's going to be organic and you're going to save 20 to 40% off on everything and end up paying the same prices as you would at like one of those super toxic grocery stores, like what are they called? Like Vons or Ralph's or whatever, depending on where you are in the world. But those like grocery stores you walk in and it just smells like chemicals and death when you walk in the door. Every once in a while, I'll, you know, for some reason have to stop and grab something from, uh, you know, the big box kind of regular grocery store. And I'm like, whoa, people still eat this zombie GMO food? Yes, they do. But you don't have to. Don't let money stop you. Go to thrivemarket.com forward slash Luke. Here's what's up. If you use that URL, thrivemarket.com forward slash Luke, you'll automatically save 25% off your first order. You're going to get free shipping. And you're going to get a three 30 day free 30-day membership because there is a monthly fee, which is like, duh, no-brainer, completely worth it. So those are our three sponsors, Juve, Beekeepers Naturals, and Thrive Market. And if you want to support your health and you want to support the podcast, look up our sponsors, man. It's very helpful when you give them feedback and you give them sales. I don't run ads on the show unless the people are the best of the best. And those three are doing it right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening to this, where am I? I'm at 12 minutes now, this outro. If you're hearing my voice now, you are a goddamn super fan. And I love you from the bottom of my heart. See you next week. This episode of the Lifestylist podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.